Heavenly Father, thank you for this afternoon. Thank you for another time in your word. Thank you for how far we've come in your word, in the various episodes we've covered. Thank you for insight. Thank you for truth, for growth, for clarity. I pray that even today, we continue a step further in your word and we grow in the truth of your word. We grow in, we grow in clarity and we apply all that we learn to our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So once again, thank you so much for quickly changing your plans to making it for today's Bible study. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been two weeks since we last met and I'm like, ah, that's a long time. <laughs> that's a really long time. But anyways, just a brief recap. We're currently in 1 John, right? We're in 1 John. Last week, we looked at 1 John 1 as well as an introduction to 1 John as a whole. And we talked about, of course, it was written by a certain John, most likely John the Apostle, right? We talked about the motivation for writing, how um, in one sense he was addressing the things that the, the prevailing teachings, right, among the Gnostics of his day. We talked about how he was writing to believers to encourage them to stand fast in their faith and to also identify um, to identify false believers or believers who would want to identify with the church but not live in a practical manner. And we spent the most of our time, hi Ernest, my yoga, hi <laughs> CJ, um, we spent the most of our time looking at the idea of 1 John 1 from verse 5 to 10 and uh, we, we we looked into 1 John 1, 9, a very common verse, right? If we confess our sins, or rather from verse 8, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we really went deep into that to find out what exactly was John writing to. And I showed you a, a, a lot of reasons to show you why the popular interpretation might not be what John had in mind. A few things to take note of already. In 1 John 1 verse 6, he says, if we say that we have fellowship in him and walk in darkness. In 1 John 1 8, if we say that we have no sin. In 1 John 1 10, if we say that we have not sinned. Just reading through that context and seeing the, the patterns that follow, you would see that the we there or the people he's identifying with will be people that claim to be a part of the body but by virtue of their conduct or one thing or the other it is contrary so by by the description already that john gives these are not true believers i think that's that's clear enough again this is just a recap we really went into that last week so there'll be some people that would want to identify with the church they would claim to be in fellowship with the father but they constantly walk in sin. And Paul says, sorry, I love Paul. John says they lie. It's the same thing I said in 1 John 1, 8, right? This would be people that would claim to be without sin and so have no need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In verse 7, again, John says they lie. 
right? The very idea of coming into fellowship with the Father, it, it entails you recognizing the need to be cleansed from your sins, which he talked about in 1 John 1, 9. And we, we kind of wrapped up in 1 John 2, where John now speaks and says, I'm writing this to you, believers, so that you don't sin. But if anyone sins, what does he say? You have an advocate with the Father. And so John's prescription, right, for when the believer sins is to remind the believer that Jesus is his advocate. And we looked at that word. It's the word parakletos in the Greek, the same word that Jesus in John. Remember I told you in the beginning that when you're reading the book of 1 John, you should probably have John 14, 15, and 16 open by the side. Because what the writer of 1 John is doing, he's pretty much reading, or John is pretty much reflecting on the very things that Jesus taught them in his last time with them on earth. And he's expounding on those very things. So the same way Jesus said, it is beneficial that I go unto my father it is necessary and it is for your benefit. John goes on to reflect again on that same theme and says, if any believer sins, what should he remember? He has an advocate with the father. It's the word intercessor, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And um, sometimes people have read this and they assume that, oh, so when you sin, Jesus now come and you stand kneeling down, God, please forgive him. I died for him. Please, Lord. <laughs> no, that is not, he's not begging God. And God is not like, it's true. And they flogged you, Shah. They flew by your stripes, by your stripes. <laughs> no, that's not what happens. So how is Jesus our advocate? He goes on in the next verse to talk about what exactly makes Jesus to be our advocate. Is the fact that he was the propitiation for our sins. So he is an intercessor or he is able to intercede because of the sacrifice he has already made. It's not something he's doing in heaven and he's cutting himself again. Ah, oh God, remember my blood and stuff like that. See if God and Jesus are on opposite ends and stuff. No, no. Jesus is intercessor. He's paracletos. He's advocate in the sense in which he was the worthy sacrifice. He was the propitiation for sins. And so by virtue of that, remember we looked at the word propitiation and I joked about how they messed up <laughs> my, my shirt, right? It's the word hilasco, my, a covering, right? A covering for sins. So he's advocate because he has offered himself as sacrifice. Does that make sense? So it's not because he's, he's now begging <laughs> and he is... So, it's the same way um, I think Hebrews would say he's seated forever to make intercessions, right, to the Father. How is he doing that? It's by the one sacrifice that he has already offered. Amen. That's why Romans would reflect on this and say God is both just and the justifier of them that have faith. Because by virtue of what Jesus has done, if God is to be just, then he is to count your sins on um, to account your sins to the sacrifice of Christ, no longer to you. Does that make sense? Thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. I know there's a lot to cover and this is still recap. So you could go back to last week's teaching to just see a lot more what we covered. But yeah, so he is the propitiation for our sins. And he says, for not ours only, but also for the whole world. And this can lead into a lot of, debates about the whole oh did jesus die for only those that believe the book 
I believe from this scripture, it makes it clear that the sacrifice of Jesus, right, was intended for everyone, both people that have believed and people that haven't. But there is a sense in which it is effective or it is efficacious in those that have received the sacrifice. And I mean, this could be a teaching on its own. But when we talk about the idea of receiving, it's the word lambano in the Greek. It's an active word. It means to take. So because Jesus died for the whole world, it doesn't mean the whole world is suddenly automatically saved. It has to be the person that would receive that sacrifice on his behalf. So the propitiation of Jesus is available to all, but is received by faith. And you come into the faith and you realize that a lot of things have, it's the same way. The healing, for healing, for instance, it is received. It is received. So you'd see the, the woman with the issue of blood. If I may just touch the hem of his garments, I will be healed. And so in a sense, she received her healing, but she took it, right? And Jesus said, go, your faith has made you whole right? It's the same thing. Just like the salvation we have come to receive, it is received by faith. It is made available by virtue of all Christ has done, but it is effective in the life of the believer by faith. Amen. It says, now by this, verse 3, now by this we know him, we know that we know him rather, if we keep his commandments. And now for the next couple of verses, if possible, open John 15 by this side. Right, because John is going to be going back and forth, right? He's going to be reflecting on a lot of things in John 15 in this very chapter. So if you can, I'm about to do the same thing. Get out your Bibles and open John 15 as well. We're going to do a brief commentary on that to make everything clear. It says, we know that we know him if what? If we keep his commandments. Where is he getting this from? Again, remember what we said in the very first teaching that the apostles taught what Jesus taught, right? In Acts, it says, Jesus taught them for 40 days the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In Acts 2, 42, it says, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. And so what we call apostolic doctrine is simply teaching that has been passed down from Jesus to the apostles, from the apostles to the early church, or in their epistles and to us today. So it's no surprise that many of the things you'd see Paul reflecting on, for instance, are things that have been established in scripture, probably expounded by, by Jesus to the apostles and now to us in the letters. It's the same thing with John. It's things that were found in the scriptures and were also taught by Jesus to the apostles and were privileged to have those letters today. So for instance, it says, by this, we know that we know him. Remember John 17, 3. What did Jesus say? He says, and this is eternal life, that they may what? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? So Jesus ties eternal life to the knowledge. Of course, not just a mere, I sabi the guy, <laughs> right? I know Obama, I know Trump. But he talks about an intimate knowledge, right? The same way John would start in 1 John 1, that which we have seen, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That is what we declare, that your fellowship will be with us and with the Father. And he says that the person who knows him, the person who indeed has eternal life, the person who knows the Father, who knows the Son, is the person that keeps his commandments. Again, you see Jesus in John 14, 15. What does he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, he goes on again, keep my 
commandments. Keep my commandments. John 15 verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you would remain in my love as I've kept my father's commandments. So John is reflecting on all of this. And I, I told you at the beginning that the entire book of First John written to a church body was to reassure them right, of who they were in Christ in the midst of, of prevailing heresy. So these were people that were teaching that Jesus did not come in a real body. That sin, in fact, anything done in the body, is it doesn't really matter. And so John is, is reminding them, based on one of the key teachings we have in the book of John, what exactly it means to be a believer today. Amen. In verse 4, he goes on, he says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's the very same thing he said in 1 John 1, 8, right? If you claim to have fellowship um, with, with the Father, but you walk in darkness, you are lying. So John is already helping the believers to form some, some form of standard. So there'll be people among them who claim to be believers, who claim to, oh, I, I know God, I'm in fellowship, I'm with you guys, but by their conduct, you can tell that this one has not been born of God. This one truly isn't saved. And that is what Paul is helping, John is helping them to do. Amen. He goes on in verse 5. It says, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are him. Exactly the same thing in John 15 verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you would remain in my love. So it's the very same thing he's saying here. Whoever keeps his commands truly is perfected in love. And the word perfected, teleo in the Greek, it simply means it's complete. It is brought to completion. So now you'll be wondering, okay, what is this commandment? What I thought we're, we're under grace, right? Why, why, why under grace? What is this? What is this commandment you're talking about? Just hold on. John will go on to tell you point blank what that commandment is. Also, Jesus talks about it, but for now, it's in the next. It's, it's in the next couple of verses. But the idea there is that the believer, the believer, or the one who has truly come into the love of God, the one who is born of God, keeps the commandment, which is to love. Um, to love God and to love his neighbors as himself. And now I want you to pay attention to this. So in, in verse 4, and even in the previous chapter, what does John say about the, the fake guy? He's the person who says. If you notice that, look at 1 John 2 verse 4. He says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments. Even in 1 John 2 verse 9, and I'll get to that when we get there again, but just look a few verses. He who says, he is in the light. So there's a constant trait. Even in the previous chapter, what does he say? If we say, 1 John 1 verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him. 1 John 1 8, if we say that we have no sin. So a common character by this, in quote, false believers is that in speech, they would, they would make those statements. They would make those confessions. I am who, I, who, who God says I am. They would make those, but, but in conduct, in character, you can start to discern that this one isn't really who he says he is. And when Paul, um, when John <laughs> contrasts with the believer, it's action. He doesn't even say they say, he says he who keeps his word. 
Look at First John two verse nine. He who says he's in the light, but he hates his brother, is in darkness until now. But in verse ten, what does it say? He who loves his brother. So there's a clear contrast between just talking and actually doing what should be done. It's just an interesting thing that you should note actually about the distinction John is making between the true believer and the the famza, the famza amongst them, right? It says, "By this we know we are in Him," and it just goes to show you. For instance, we talk about things like Ezekiel thirty-six verse twenty-six, right? I will take out a stony heart of them, and I will put my spirit with them. I will cause them to walk in my statutes. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one to thirty-three. The very same thing. What you see every time the new covenant is presented is that in the believer there is an inner working in him that causes him to live for God. There is, by virtue of your regeneration, you're being brought from death to life. You're being born again, an ability. Literally, the Spirit of God is at work in you to cause you to do the will of God. Remember when we talked about Ephesians two verse ten? For we are His what workmanship, created anew in Christ to do the good works which He prepared beforehand that we walk in. It's the same thing in Titus two verse eleven fourteen. The grace of God teaches us; it teaches us to shun unrighteousness, to walk righteously. Amen. So that's pretty much the emphasis John is making here. That for everyone who is truly born of God, and we're going to see him elaborate on this as we go on. But for everyone who is truly born of God, by virtue of the Spirit of God, he is enabled, and he does actually walk in the will of God. Amen. So he goes on to say again, he who says he abides in Him ought also to walk. Just as he has walked. So the summary of all he's saying is that true faith should be evident in conduct. True faith should be evident in conduct. Amen. It says in verse seven, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. So, in a sense, what he's saying is that the commandment I'm telling you to love God, to love um your brethren. It's not new. You heard it when you got saved. In fact, even in the old covenant, in the laws of Moses, Jesus said, "What the entire laws and prophets can be summarized as what love God, love your neighbor." So it's old in the sense that it has always existed. But he goes on in verse eight to say, "Yet a new commandment I write to you." So there is a sense in which the command to walk in love is old because it's always there. But then he says, "Yet again, it is new." And he goes on to say, "It is true in him, in Christ, and it is true in you. Why? Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is shining." So, what he's saying by implication is that there is a sense in which this this whole talk about love walk, right, and a believer responding to his identity, it is old because the the commands have always been there. Don't covet, right? Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor, honor your mother and your father. Basically, walk in love. It's been there, but it is new, and it says it is true in Christ, and it is true in you. So the reason, or he ties the newness of the love walk to something that is a reality in Christ and the believer. What is that? It's the Spirit. 
it's the same thing I just said from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, right? From um, that, that as by virtue of your being born again, there is the, there is the working of God on your inside to cause you to walk in love. So it is new in the sense in which before, at least under the old covenant, the enablement to walk in, 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 in the status of God was not there. And that's why Jeremiah says what? I will make another covenant. Hebrews goes on to elaborate that if there was nothing wrong with the previous one, he won't say I'm making another one, right? And what was the problem? He said that they could not keep it because of their sins. He says, I will, I will put my spirit. He says, you won't need to teach any man to know the Lord because all shall know the Lord. He's going to talk about this when he talks about the Antichrist, but we're going to get there. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But the point is, the reason this commandment is both old and it's new now is because the motivation and the enablement has been redefined by Jesus. So now we can love because we have seen love in the face of Christ. We've seen love in the face of Jesus, God's greatest display of love to our minds. It was in his sacrifice. We can love because we have the Spirit. So when it says it is true in him and in you, what is showing is that Jesus showed that he was possible, but he didn't stop there. He also empowered you to do likewise. So pretty much he's saying you can love because Jesus loved. The motivation is found in Christ. The enablement is found in Christ. Amen. It says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Who is light? Remember John 1. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Even in the previous chapter, 1 John 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> in him is no darkness at all. I reject any spirit <laughs> of each factor anyways it says the true light is already shining and so there is a sense in which by virtue of the revelation of who we now see in christ by virtue of 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 the light that we have found the life we have the life of christ which is indeed the light of god we are not only motivated to do so we are also enabled to do so does that make sense? Thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. I want to be sure I didn't lose anyone. Do you want me to come over it and um, go over it again? All right, all right. If you want me to go over it again, just put it in the chat and I'll go over it again. All right, it seems it's pretty... Oh, I should go over it again. All right, I think that's what you mean. So just to summarize, what I'm basically saying, I said John says the commandment. What is the command? Okay, let, let's just... Let's go for spoilers here. 1 John 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment. 1 John 3, 23. That we should believe in the name of his son and love one another. So everywhere you see command, 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 it is to believe in the gospel and to walk in love, meaning to respond to who you are. Pretty much everything we've been talking about, right? If you remember, I talked about um, Ephesians. He labored to tell you what God has done in the church. First, um, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 4, it says, what? therefore, in Colossians, he does the same thing. Colossians 1, Colossians 2, he paints the Lordship of Christ. He paints um, how by virtue of that Lordship of Christ, you don't have to submit to the, to the systems of this world anymore. He now says in verse 3, therefore, set your sights on the things above. So just like Paul, 
John is doing the same thing that at the end of the day, being a believer does not stop at some form of mental ascent. It doesn't stop at some form of mental recognition. It must always translate into practical love work. And that's John's emphasis in the entire book. And so when, what he's pretty much saying is that I write no new commandment, meaning what I'm telling you to do as a believer walking in love, it's not new. You heard it when you got saved. It's always been there, even in the laws of Moses. I mean, even heathen people like Confucius do unto others as you'd have them do Right? This is not a new thing. But he says, again, it is actually new. And I explained that the reason it is new is because it is tied to the light that is shining, which is the revelation of Jesus. Because he says, it is, this is a new commandment I write to you. It is true in Christ. And it is true in you. So what I'm saying is that the reason that this whole talk about love work is a new commandment or it can be peculiar to the believer is because first of all, he has seen an example in Jesus. That becomes his motivation or her motivation. But more than that, he has been enabled by the spirit to do likewise. So unlike the Lord, I'll just say, oh yeah, take, go, go and do this. But it did not produce any ability. Remember Galatians. The law was only added to convict people of sin and to point them to the need of a savior. In itself, it had no power to cause people to live for God. But it is. But this one is new. Why? Because by virtue of the spirit of God. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. By virtue of the spirit of God, we are able to respond how we should. So it is a new commandment in the sense in which Jesus has become the motivation. Not, not only that, Jesus has become the enabling power to make it possible. Does that make sense? So that's what he means by it's not new and it's also new. Awesome, 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 awesome. All right. I'm, I'm trying to see how much time because there's a lot. <laughs> there's really a lot we have to do, but I'll try not to rush. Let's, let's calm down. Let's calm down. All right, let's go on. Verse 9, it says, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother. Remember, he just talked about it in verse 8. The true light is already shining. I told you that the light is the life of God found in Christ. Now he says again, just like he has said in the previous chapter, just like he said in verse 4. If you claim to be in the light, if you claim to be in Christ, if you claim that indeed the Spirit of God lives in me, but you hate your brother, it says you are in darkness even until now. You're in darkness even until now because the spirit of Christ causes you to walk in love. It is, in this, I mean, let's open it. Maybe we should probably open it. Ezekiel 36, 26. Let's refresh our memories a bit. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. What does it say? It says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit. Do you see that? So the enablement is tied to the spirit of Christ. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take a heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So that's exactly what John is hammering on. That anyone who claims that scripture is true in their lives, but for some reason or the other, they are still walking in hate. It says that they are in darkness even until now. It's a lie. 
and he's going to go on to show you that it's not possible right let's let's that's in in the next chapter he says on the contrary he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him so again he com- he contrasts a person who make claims statements it's all just talk but there's no reality to it on the other hand the one who has indeed been born of god he loves he walks in love he says there's no cause for stumbling because he is in the light it says but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes he now says i write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake now just to even buttress again what we've been saying in 1 john 8 verse 9 if you say you have no sin clearly if it's the same author that wrote chapter 1 chapter 2 unless the author has serious amnesia then it means that the, the interpretation we usually ascribe to 1 john 1:8 if we say we have no sin we lie is not consistent with what he's trying to say here because here he makes it very clear that i write to you little children because your sins are what forgiven your sins are forgiven will these people say they have sin of course not because their sins are forgiven it just goes on to just buttress everything i was talking about 2 weeks ago that the idea of if we say we have no sin was talking about a certain group of people that would deny the need to be cleansed or forgiven with the accusation that they have no sin right and I, i explained how it was a function of the prevailing theology in their day where anything inherently material was sinful and corrupt and so anything done in the body really doesn't matter what really matters is this spiritual state of being that on, that that's the only thing god cares about right and i explained that anyways just listen to, <laughs> i don't want to spend too much time on that but again the point there is those would be the people that would say they have no sin and therefore they have nothing to be cleansed of this is not talking about a believer every time he comes to pray is he would make a statement that if i say i have no sin i lie no he just clearly said it here your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake he goes on to say i write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Let me read the entire poem and then I would explain. I write to you little children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. Now, um usually this also this few verses from verse 12 to verse 14, people or theologians would discuss and argue some say John is just being poetic there's nothing more some say John is being intentional in categorizing and all of that i believe there's a bit of each and now every time we as we go on in this episode journey if we get to a place where usually people are torn on different meanings i would let you know the various interpretations and which i tend to lean towards to i think of course there's a sense of poetry because he repeats the same categories twice but there's also a bit of intentionality in calling out the categories and you can see that by virtue of what he ascribes to the different family classes so for children he says this is something that has just happened you have been forgiven of course it's true for fathers it's true for every believer right they have been forgiven but it's something that's peculiar to someone who is new in the faith it says fathers because you know he ties their experience in the faith to knowledge 
and he says young men because you are strong i'm just this is just by the way but i felt i needed to say that so i do feel there is a sense in which he was actually speaking categorically to different groups of people but there's also a poetic edge to it because everything there is true for every believer right every believer has overcome the wicked one every believer has been forgiven every believer knows the father every believer um has the word of god abiding in them right amen i i i hope that's clear and he goes on in verse 15 very popular verse do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him so john is not losing his mind and somehow just switching context all of a sudden he has been talking about walking in love he has been talking about walking in love and so he now addresses okay if i'm to love people if i'm to love my neighbor i'm to love god love everyone he he makes a contrast between the love of god or the love of the father the love of the father which is love for people right and the love of the world it says for all that is in the world what does he categorize the lust of the flesh referring to desires inordinate affections unrestrained appetites the lust of the eyes greed materialism right i want i want um the pride of life he says it is of the father but so it's not of the father but it's of the world and it's funny how i mean just take a look at today's society everything wrong with the world today can be traced to one of these three things is it corruption and bad leadership that's greed lust of the <laughs> lust of the eyes right is it um, is it sexual immorality lust of the flesh is it um, materialism and people and um, classes and discrimination and all of that the pride of life even the very first sin recorded in the book of genesis you see what it says it says eve saw that it was a tree good to look at it was desirable for eating right it was good to make and it looked like it could make someone wise so you see you even see the expression of those three you see the lust of the flesh you see the lust of the eyes you see a desire for pride or for status right and he tells you that any of these things are not found in the father he makes a very clear contrast between the love for the world and the love of the father now from a theological bible study explanatory point of view there might not be mu- there might not be much to say theologically but i beg you to take out time and prayerfully reflect right in our journey in our christian faith these are things we would constantly battle with these are things we have to constantly look inward have i given room to the lust of the flesh in what way am i allowing or making accommodations for the love of the world in what ways am i am i giving room for the pride of life these are things that regularly we should take out time to prayerfully reflect on i told you several times the purpose of theology is not to say oh i can explain everything john was trying to say but much more than that can we see the results in your life If you like be able to spend 5 hours and exegete all the books of 1 John. If you are proud, there's a problem. <laughs> the the very book you're exegeting on warns you against pride. Warns you against pride. The same thing with greed, materialism, and he gives a reason. It says it's because it's temporary. Verse 17, the world is passing away. So even from a logical standpoint, it makes no sense to love or to attach or to cling to the world. 
because it's passing away. I mean, if you play video games, for instance, or let's even use, let me use the movie Jumanji. If you watch um, Jumanji, so you would notice that, let's say if I'm playing a video game and I have one life, I could still try a few stunts. I might say, oh, let me try it because even if I die, it's not real, right? I can always start afresh. But if you watch the movie, remember when after a few deaths, they're like, oh, wow, if we truly die, we are actually dead. And they started to take it as more than a game. Why? Because their lives were at stake. That's that's an analogy to what John is trying. He says the world is passing away. It's not here forever. It's temporal. The real thing is what would count for eternity. So it makes no sense to prioritize. It's like prioritizing a video game over your actual life. That's the same thing when someone prioritizes his life here at the expense of his life for eternity. That's why Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul for eternity? Because from a logical standpoint, it makes no sense. That's like getting a high score on a game only for you to end up being killed in real life or for you to have no, no meaningful impact on your life on earth. It's the same thing. Why would you place so much emphasis on a video game and in real life, you cannot, it doesn't show for anything. So even from a logical standpoint, whether it's career, why would you spend your entire life laboring or placing that? Something that you even do for the at last, last, maybe 60, 65, you'd retire at the expense of your eternal, your eternal life. Why would you place pleasure? Something that, again, like you said, it's passing away. So these are just things to reflect on that. If you truly believe that the world is passing away, you would not live for it. You will not live for it. Jesus said something similar. Don't don't um don't store your treasures on earth where moths will eat into and thieves could steal. But build storehouses in heaven. Again, it's all about priority. It's about perspective. If you truly see the world as it is from an eternal point of view, you'd realize just just having a well-balanced view of eternity would automatically align your priorities. You would know what matters and what doesn't. You know what matters and what doesn't. And so if you truly believe that the world is passing away, but the word of God abides forever, it would show in your priorities. It would show in your priorities. And that's why it says, don't love the world. Don't love the things of the world. It's passing away. Not only that, it does not in any way reflect the Father. Amen. So like I said, there might not be much to say theologically from an exegetical standpoint. But from a very practical, serious, applicational standpoint, there's a lot to reflect on here. Do I truly believe that this world is passing away? Maybe I believe, but are there times where I lose sight of it and all of a sudden I become so overwhelmed by a video game and I lose sight of what truly matters? Amen. Amen. All right, let's go on. Ha. Time is not my friend. <laughs> okay. It says, little children, verse 18, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Again, 666. <laughs> Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Again, he says the last hour because he just talked about the fact that the world is passing away. So if there is an end, then he's telling you, not only is the world passing away, we are already in the last stages of his exit. 
right? That's why he uses it. It is the last hour. The world is passing away and we're even in the very final moments. We're in the end credits, right, of the world. And it says, um, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. So from this verse, already we can make and we can we can draw two conclusions that yes, there is a sense in which John alludes to some antichrist that is coming. But more than that, he even tells them that the antichrist has already come. More than just one person that you're looking for somewhere. Some have said it's Obama, some said it's Trump, some said it's Putin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That is all. That is that is not what John is telling you. Since the Antichrist, and this is two thousand years ago, since the Antichrist has come, and by it's because they have come that we know is the last hour. So that already tells you that what you think is Antichrist, you need to you need to renew your mind <laughs> in the Word of God. So even though there's a sense in which John does not disprove of maybe an Antichrist figure at some point in history, but he also lets you know that the the antichrist or the spirit of the antichrist or the the operations of antichrist are already present from their time the last hour would refer to any point from the resurrection of jesus till he returns that's the end of the age right and it says they went out from us very important verse verse 19 they went out from us but referring to the antichrists right plural <laughs> they went out from us but they were not of us and i want you to read this carefully they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what would have happened? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And the emphasis here is that if they were of us, they would have continued. Again, John is making an allusion to the perseverance of the believer. That these false believers or these false teachers that you go on to talk about, they deny the identity of Jesus. They deny the Christ. It says, if they were truly in our company, they would have. So one of the signs or one of the proofs of genuine salvation is perseverance. The believer endures till the end. The believer endures till the end. It's the same thing he has been going on to say that some of these people would say, that they have fellowship. They would say that they are in the light. They would say that they have no sin. But by virtue of their conduct, by virtue of their character, and now by virtue of their teaching, you can tell that these people are not of us. In fact, not only are they not of us, they have never, they, he said they were never of us to start with. It's the same thing Jesus says. Many times people use this scripture and say, ah, you can't be party with Jesus, but at the end of the day, you say, get thee behind me. No. What does he say? It says, many will come at the last day and say, Lord, Lord, in your name I did this, in your name I... And it says what? It says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. So already, that rules out the interpretation that it's a believer that suddenly fell away. That's not what Jesus was saying. These are people just like these people who try to identify with the body. Who would try to claim, oh, we are in fellowship. Oh, I am who he says I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. But it says they were never part of us. They never truly believed. Says, if they were of us, they would have continued. So one of the guarantees or one of the assurances of salvation is that we will continue. A person who has truly believed the gospel will continue. Amen. Verse 20, it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, 
and you know all things. The word anointing there is the word chrisma. It literally means a smearing, right? They rub your body. They, you, you, you rub cream, right? You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. This is a direct um, call back to John 16. He says, I have many things to say to you. John 16, verse 12 and 13. Jesus speaking. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Verse 13 is my emphasis. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. But he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So that's the same thing John is saying. So he says, Jesus said, the spirit will guide you into all truth. John is saying, you have the Holy Ghost. You know all things. So now reading in context, what would all things refer to? Is it mathematics? Is it uh, calculus? Is it okay, how to get babe? I know that one too by the spirit of God. <laughs> is that what John is saying? Let's read on. He says, I have written to you because you not because, sorry, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. So in verse 20, he says, you know all things. In verse 21, he says the truth, right? We're still reading on. What exactly is this all things that he's supposed to, or that we all as believers know by virtue of the Holy Spirit? What is this truth that we all know by virtue of the Holy Spirit? Let's read on. Who is a liar? right? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So much more than some political figure that people are trying to use some calculations to figure out, John makes it clear. The Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist or anyone who is Antichrist is someone who denies Jesus, and by implication, denies the Father. And so you can already fit a lot of ideologies, people that would tell you that Jesus isn't the Son of God or that Jesus isn't divine. Jesus is not the Christ. We see that in a lot of teachings. So for instance, even amongst the JWs, you hear that, oh, Jesus is an angel, um, supreme angel created or stuff like that. Or even Islam that would go on to say, um, that Jesus is just a prophet. He never died. And so by implication, he never rose from the dead. John makes it clear, any teaching, any ideology that denies the, 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 um, the role of Jesus as the savior of the world, that denies Jesus as the son of God is Antichrist. So there you have it. That's the Antichrist you've been looking for. <laughs> Amen. It says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what is this truth? What is this all things that they know? It is the very same thing that Jesus told them, right? He would take of what is mine and declare it to you. So in this context, all things or the truth that every believer knows by virtue of the, the, the Holy Spirit that they have, what John calls an anointing, refers to the reality or the identity of the Son and His work. Let me take that again. 
I said, in this context, what John will refer to as you knowing all things or you knowing the truth refers to by virtue of the Holy Spirit, you know the Son, the identity of the Son as the Son of God and His work in your life. That is the all things that you know. That is the truth that the Spirit of God guides you into. Does that make sense? Thumbs up. I want to. I, want, I think this is a good place to get feedback. Does that make sense? So the all things is not your math homework. It's not um, how to. I don't know how to what. <laughs> that is. Does that make sense? Thumbs up. Thumbs up, guys. I want to be sure. I've only seen two. <laughs> I need more. Do, or should I come again? Like if I should come again, just put it in the chat, and I would. I would take it again. All right. Thumbs up. Yes, but I can't come again. <laughs> Don't eat your cake and have it. <laughs> Anyways, yes, I said, um, okay, let me read to verse 27 and then I'll go over everything again from verse 20. It says, um, hold on, give me a second. Yes. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard abides in you, you would also abide in the Son and the Father. I'll come back to that because that is John 15 summarized it says this is the promise that he has promised us eternal life remember john 17 3 even in the prayer of john 17 that you have you have caused him to give eternal life to anyone who receives him right the promise of eternal life it says these things i have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you so there are people in the church who even claim to be a part of the church but would deny whether the humanity or the divinity of Christ deny the identity of Jesus as the son of God, right? For instance, Mormonism will teach Jesus was a regular man that somehow attained deity and so it's a path that everyone can go, stuff like that. Basically, any teaching that does not acknowledge who Jesus is and by virtue who the father is, is the antichrist. It is verse 27, he repeats it. The anointing, referring to the Holy Spirit, right, which you have received from him, abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. Remember Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Let's open it. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will make a new covenant. I told you Hebrews says that if there was nothing wrong with the old, he would have never promised a new. But we'll get to Hebrews. I don't even know how we're going to do it in Hebrews. It feels like we'll be doing two weeks for one chapter. <laughs> with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. In verse 33, it says, this is the covenant I would make after those days. I would put my law in their minds. I would write it on their hearts. I will be my God and they shall be my people. It says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will what? Forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Hallelujah. If this was a teaching on forgiveness, this is a beautiful place to camp. It says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I would remember no more. Who shall remind the Lord of what he has forgotten? <laughs> Anyways, but the emphasis here I'm saying is that every man shall know the Lord. What he's talking about here is not saying that you don't need to be taught. Right? It's the same thing in verse 27 where it says, you don't need anyone to teach you. 
it's common sense. The very reason John is writing the epistle is to teach them. <laughs> so why would he, in a letter that is to teach, say that they don't need to be taught? So that's not saying you don't need to be discipled, you don't need to be taught the word of God. This teaching here, what you need to be taught here is in a context. It's the same thing as the all things. It's the same thing as in the truth. It says the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and it's true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you would abide in him. What is this all things? What is this thing that you don't need anyone te to teach you rather? The revelation of who Jesus is as the son of God. The day you got saved, you believed that Jesus was the Son of God. You believed that by virtue of his sacrifice, you were forgiven. You received the Holy Spirit. And that's why John will go on in chapter 5 of this same chapter to tell you that you have a witness, the Holy Ghost. It says you know that I've written it so that you will know that you have eternal life. So what he's pretty much telling them, right, is that be wary of these guys that will tell you things about Christ not being the son of God or not uh, not dying in flesh and all of that. He says, but even, even though I would emphasize this, it says you have no need for anyone to teach you because by virtue of the fact that you have the Holy Spirit, you know that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Jesus is indeed who the father says he is. And that's why Jesus said that he would guide you into the into all truth. He would take of me and declare it to you. So what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, amongst many other things, is to confirm the identity and the ministry of Jesus. I'll say that again. What the Holy Spirit does, amongst many other things in the believer, is to confirm the identity as well as the ministry of Jesus in that believer's life. And as concerning those two things, as far as you have the Holy Spirit, you can be sure Jesus is who he says he is. That's why Jesus would go on and on in John 14 to say, in that day, in that day, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father. The Father is in me and I am in you and you are in me. What day? That's the day you receive the Holy Spirit. It says that I will go, but I will once again come to you. I would come to you, he says, your joy would be full, referring to the Holy Spirit. So there is just something about the fact that the moment the believer, and we saw it in Acts 2, for instance, by virtue of the believer receiving the Holy Spirit, he can be sure that indeed Jesus was who he said he was. Or Jesus is who he says he is, because he hasn't changed. And by virtue of that, the Father is who the Father is. The Son is who the Son is. Does that make sense? So John is speaking as to something specific here when he talks about the anointing, the teaching, the all things, and abiding in him. He's speaking specifically as regards the identity and the saving ministry of Jesus. Does that make sense? Thumbs up. Thumbs up if that makes sense. All right, all right, all right, all right. More thumbs up. Have I, I hope I have convinced you, not confused you. More thumbs up. Ah, only two people understand. Should I go? Okay, okay, good. All right, all right, all right. Good, 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 good. <laughs> if you want me to go over it again, um, listen to the podcast. Just 
put it on slow motion and just listen, <laughs> listen again, or just say, I don't need anyone to teach me. I have the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. So another thing we see here is the same thing I've emphasized everywhere an apostle encourages the believer to persevere or to stand or to beware of false teachings. There is a sense in which the believer is encouraged to be wary of false teachers. The believer is encouraged to persevere. But the, all those instructions, or should I say warnings, are always met with confirmations of assurance or comforts of assurance. So you'll see Paul saying that I'm confident that he who started a good work will perfect it to the day of Christ. You would see John here saying it, that be careful about these guys. But he also says, I'm not writing something that you don't know. You know the truth. And it says that I know that you will abide in him. We see the writer of Hebrews saying the same thing, that even though we speak in this manner, we are persuaded of better things concerning you. So you would notice often, in fact, pretty much everywhere, as we see those instructions, we see those, those encouragements to keep on the faith, to keep the faith, be wary of false teachers, hold fast to what you've learned. You also see those comforts that I'm sure that you will. Unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you are kept by the power of God. He who started a good work will perfect it. To show you that the perseverance of the believer and the preservation of God go hand in hand. So the reason I can say 10 years from now, I will be standing strong in the faith is because I know that God is at work in me, both to be learned to do. I know that he that started a good work will perfect it until the day that Christ appears. And so I would, I would persevere. I would run away from false teachings. I won't give in to heretical teachings about who Jesus is and what he did. But at the end of the day, all of that is also side by side. In fact, if not more, the assurance that God is the one at work to keep me. So it's something you always see, that dynamic. The apostles will tell them, hold fast, hold fast, continue, persevere, don't lose faith, this and that. But they also make it very clear that I am sure that God is at work in you. I am sure that you will stand. I am sure that you will abide. I'm sure that you are kept. Amen. He goes on. And I think I, would, I wouldn't risk going to chapter 3 today. It says, And now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So the one who will be ashamed is the one who doesn't abide. Who is the one who doesn't abide? The one who um, never acted, right, in, in accordance, pretty much everything we've talked about so far. The one who hates his brother. The one who claims to be in the flock, but walks in sin, walks in darkness, right? So just to round up today, let's go to John 15. Let's go to John 15. Um, <laughs> let's let's go to John 15 because now we've seen a lot of talk about abiding, right? In verse 28, it says abide in him. Verse 27, it says um, you will abide in him. The anointing that you have received abides in you. 
writes in verse 24, 1 John 2, 24, let that abide in you what you've heard, the teachings of, of Jesus, right? If what you heard abides in you, you would abide in the Son and in the Father. So let's just briefly look at John 15 and we'll call it a day slash night. So now, first John 15, sorry, John 15, um, it's a common verse, right? I'm the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Um, we've heard this used to teach a lot of things. Some have used to teach soul winning. In some places, it has been used to teach spiritual growth. But let's let's take a moment to think on what abiding really means, right? And all right, let me not spoil it. Let's, if in case you've never heard this before or you've not heard it taught this way, no Allah, you can always re reread and come back to me if you don't agree. <laughs> Anyways, verse one. I'm saying this also for the people that also will be listening over the podcast. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. In the previous chapter, Jesus had gone on to talk about the Holy Spirit who would come, right? And by virtue of the Holy Spirit coming, we would somehow or rather we would identify both with the father and with the son it's the same thing john writes in first john one right that um, we write so that you may come into our fellowship and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with the son so by believing in the words of the apostles by believing the gospel you receive the holy spirit which by implication is your identification with the son with the father and with other believers i believe that's clear but he goes on in john 15 i'm the true vine my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruits, he takes away. So who is a branch that is not bearing fruit? Before you start to think about a lot of things you probably grew up hearing, let's read on. Every branch, so any branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruits, he prunes that he may bear more fruits. Verse 3 you are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, pause. I read up to this part because we're going to do a little Greek study, right? It says, any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And any branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that he may bear more fruit. Now it says, you are already clean. Where did clean come from? I thought he's talking about agriculture, not dishwashing or soap making. <laughs> Where did clean come from? If you turn to the Greek, right, and look at what those words really mean. Give me a second. Okay, my Greek Bible is hiding from me. <laughs> when it says, any branch that bears fruit, he purges it. That's the word kathairo in the Greek, and it means to cleanse or to prune. To cleanse or to prune. Now he says you are clean. That's the word katharos, meaning you are you have been cleansed or you have been pruned. So now, pause, and I want you to take out some time to think about this. Like Pastor Emmanuel would always say, put your, um, when we, it's time for Bible study, put your thinking caps on, right? He says any branch that bears fruits, he prunes or he cleans, that it may bear more fruits. In verse 3, he now says, you have already been cleaned or you have already been pruned 
because of the words I have spoken to you. So what would be the bearing fruits in verse 2? I, I, I hope I asked it well. So let me try and ask it again. If the, if the disciples as at John 15 are already clean or have already been pruned because of the words Jesus has spoken unto them, what would be John 15 verse 2? What does it mean to bear fruit and then be cleansed? I've given you an example by saying cleansed. But what would bear fruit mean? What do you think it means? Put it in the comments. I'm very curious to hear. Just before I even go on to say anything, just from a, from just reflecting and reading, if the disciples are clean because of the words Jesus has spoken, and in the preceding verses, Jesus said that any branch that bears fruit, he would clean. What would that bearing fruit mean? Okay, someone says salvation by faith. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Okay, to be productive or bring others to the knowledge of Christ. Any other thoughts? Again, remember the question. This is something that has already happened to the disciples. So think about what you think. And it's a response to the word. So think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Think. Think. <laughs> Two more responses. Come on, don't be shy. Holy Spirit. That's a bit vague. What do you mean Holy Spirit? You could, you could go on to explain, but one more response and then we'll go into it. But I want you guys to think about it. If Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes or he cleanses so that it may bear more fruits. And he says, the disciples have already been pruned because of the words he has spoken unto them. This is this would cast your mind back to John 13, where he tried to wash or where he washed their feet. And he told Peter, that you are already clean, right? He that is clean, I don't need to, I don't need to watch your entire body. You are clean. So reflect on that. And let me see, just one more because of time, just one more. Think about that. And, and what does it mean to bear fruits? What does it mean to bear fruits? At least in verse two, not bear more fruits, to bear fruits. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Anyways, let's 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 think through it together, right? If the disciples, yes, exactly. So, like, okay, okay, that's what you meant by accepting Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. If the disciples have already been pruned or have already been cleansed by an initial response to the words of Jesus, then to bear fruits leading to cleansing or to pruning would have to refer to a response to the word, just like the apostles, right? Responding positively to the words of Christ, a.k.a. believing, a.k.a. salvation. So the reason, I'm, the reason I wanted us to drag through this process is because of the, the usage of the word abide in both 15 and 1 John. So Jesus makes it clear 
that the disciples are already clean because of the words he has spoken unto them or by because of their response more elaborately to the words he has spoken to them and he goes on to say abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me he who abides in me the next verse and i in in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing so if the whole process of abiding and bearing fruit has to do with a response to the word and what follows after right aka um growth right when john reflects on everything jesus has said remember i told you that john 1 john 2 1 john 3 it's a lot of things john is pulling from chapter 14 chapter 15 chapter 16 of john and he says what in first john it says sorry give me a second uh i've lost track of where i was verse 24 let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning so again the whole idea of abiding has to do with the response to what you have heard so abiding in the son or abiding in the father has to do with holding fast the message of salvation. I believe that's clear. Thumbs up if what I just at least this little part I just said, abiding in the son, abiding in the father has to do with holding fast the message of salvation. All right, that's clear. Verse 27, the anointing you have received in him abides in you talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? And it says just as it has taught you you would abide in him. It's the same thing Jesus was teaching when he was teaching about him being the vine, being the branches. First of all, bearing fruits. Right? Bearing fruit would have to do with responding to the word of God. And it's the same analogy Jesus gave when he gave the parable of the sower. Some among rocky soil, some among on thorny um a thorn and thorns right and some on good soil the only one that bore fruit was the seed that fell on good soil and it says some 60 fold some 100 fold and all of that so this is not the first time jesus is using the analogy of fruit bearing to talk about a positive response to the word or the salvation message and he goes on to then say abide if you abide in me and i in you you will bear much fruit now john goes on full circle to tell you that by virtue of the holy spirit by virtue of the indwelling of the holy spirit and the conviction he he provides to your heart you abide again he's talking about response to false doctrine so he's saying that whenever you come across these teachers whenever you come across any teaching contrary to the identity of the ministry of jesus Remember you have the Holy Spirit and because of that Holy Spirit he is confident that you would abide meaning what you would hold fast to the revelation of Jesus in the gospel you would hold fast to the message you heard at the beginning aka salvation does that make sense I know I just I did something that I could have probably taken maybe more time and maybe I'll do this more I'll just go over it again but does that make sense at least to a good extent I want to be sure I haven't lost anyone before I summarize one more time but does that make sense thumbs up if that makes sense okay I thank God I'm seeing the thumbs up that's very encouraging <laughs> okay oh okay it makes sense perfect perfect it makes sense 
So that is what it means to abide. That is what that is what it means to abide. It is talking about a response to the work of the Holy Spirit in the face of opposition or in the face of contrary teachings. At least in in this in this context, at least in this context. Amen. All right. So just by way of summary, I actually thought we're going to be able to do 1 John 2 and 1 John 3. There's a lot I also have to say on 1 John 3, but that's fine. For the sake of time, we'll stop at where we are now. But just to summarize, from 1 John 2, from verse 1 to 6, we see John reminding the believers that when the believer sins, what is he to acknowledge? What is he to confess? the fact that he has an advocate with the Father. And I told you that the intercessory role Jesus plays is not in kneeling down and begging God not to punish you whenever you sin. It is in the sacrifice he already paid. It's in the sacrifice he already paid, right? So that's why he says he is the propitiation for our sins. So when the believer sins, what is he to remember? That Jesus has already become his propitiation. And because Jesus is with the Father, it shows that that sacrifice was accepted. It shows that because he is with the Father, he is able by virtue of his priesthood. That's why I just said it is necessary. If I don't go to the Father, the Holy Spirit won't come. You will still be in your sins. But because he is seated at the right hand, because he is glorified and has ascended to meet the Father. Remember, I said, I go. Where I go, you know, and the way, you know. He now goes on to say, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one cometh to where the Father. So all Jesus was talking about was that by virtue of my, my death, my burial, my resurrection, and my ascension, I would make possible a, 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 a release of the Spirit of God that would cause you to identify with all I have done. In that sense, he becomes the advocate. In that sense, he makes intercessions because his sacrifice is ever valid. Amen. So that's what John wants you to remember. Whenever you sin, remind yourself, the sacrifice of Christ is ever valid. Jesus is my advocate. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He goes on to then emphasize anyone who claims to identify with the Father but does not walk in love is lying. Why? Because like we read in Ezekiel 36, 26, Jeremiah 31, 33, a key component of the new birth is the enabling power of the Spirit of God on your inside to walk in love. So anyone who claims to identify with Christ and does not walk consistently, he's a liar. He's a liar. Right? He goes on to talk about the new commandment, which is also an old commandment, which I've spent a lot of time. There's no need going over that anymore. And he goes on to say, um, don't love the world, right? The love of the world and the love of the Father are very two different things. He ends by talking about the Antichrist, right? And I told you that more than just a one one figure to appear at the end of the age, the Antichrist more accurately, at least in our time, refers to people, ideologies, and systems that deny the identity and the ministry of Jesus as the Son of God. And what is the combat? What is the solution? Or what is our response to that? We have an anointing of the Holy One. We know all things and we know the truth. I told you that all things and the truth 
refers to the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal or to, to, to confirm the identity and the ministry of Jesus. Hallelujah. And he goes on to say that because of that, you will abide. And we, we corroborated with John 15 to see how that simply refers to keep holding fast the message you have received. In this context, in the face of error, how the, the very idea of bearing fruits to be pruned in the first place refers to responding to the message of the words of Jesus. And so once that happens, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're able to bear even more fruit as you grow and experience joy and progress in your faith. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. So that is that is the end of today. Glory to God. I hope you learned one or two things. <laughs> I hope you learned one or two things. There was a lot. I, I, I spent most of um, yesterday preparing for both chapter two and chapter three. And there was just so much. I'm like, will I be able to do all this in an hour plus? Clearly, I couldn't, but no, Allah. I hope you guys learned um, from today. Let's, any questions, first of all, any questions before we pray? Any questions? So, I saw a question one time. The person asked, if we automatically inherited Adam's sin, then why can't we be automatically saved in Christ? And why do we need to believe first? Thank you for asking this question. Although it's not fair <laughs> that we have 10 minutes to talk about this. But I would, I, would, I, would, I would give some helpful ways to start thinking about it. And uh, let's see. I would, I'll try my best to do that. Maybe next week I'll also touch on it. Please remind me. Um, I'll get to that. Any other questions, first of all? That's a very big question. It borders on the idea of original sin. Um, so it touches on a lot of issues. <laughs> so it's not, a, it's not a simple question, but I'm glad you asked it. Any other questions before I round up? If I answer that, I round up. <clears throat> All right. It seems like no one has any questions. Okay. So... Um, Miriam's question is that, or rather, a question she was asked, or a question she has come across is that, and it's I'm sure some of you have probably thought about it as well. If we somehow automatically inherited Adam's sin, um, why can't we automatically inherit? Why why must we why must we believe? And there are two ways because the the question assumes two things, right? The question assumes that we automatically inherit Adam's sin. And the question assumes we can't automatically be saved. So there are two ways to look at it. The first one is from Christ's standpoint. And I think usually that's the easier, that's the easier standpoint. Now, when you talk about salvation, and I, I want you to, one of the ways you can respond is to have the person really think about what sin is. Right? Sin is by definition before even the actions that follow, separation from God. So you would see, I believe Paul saying that we're separated both in our thoughts and in our deeds. You would see, um, um, uh, I think Paul, right, in Romans talking about how um, men loved, men loved, even Jesus, right? He says that men loved darkness more than they loved the light. 
So there's an idea in which sin by nature is the fact that man is separated from God. Man is separated from God. And while you might I don't want to get to the first part, but I'll get to that after I finish this. So I'll try to separate it as clearly as I can. But let's even assume, let's even assume that by by virtue of what Adam did, everyone um is is separated from God, right? What then would be salvation? Salvation is you being reconciled or being brought near. Remember we looked at this in Ephesians. You who were sometimes far off have been brought near to God. So salvation is literally being reconciled to God. So the question now is that if God is truly love, will he force anyone to to accept him i think that's that's like i said from the this is from the perspective of the sac- the offer of christ now the salvation in christ if god is truly love so for instance if i mean any of you especially ladies if a guy says he loves you and you say you are not interested if he somehow forces himself on you that you must be my boyfriend to this 2021 they said i would not die single <laughs> you must be my girlfriend rather would you say he actually loves you that is not love that is obsession and that is self seeking he doesn't he doesn't love you because he's not putting your interest he's not he's, he doesn't he doesn't value your opinions doesn't value your interest and all of that you cannot separate love from free will we know it as human beings and somehow we expect god the creator of both love and free will to violate both if god truly is love right and if god truly honors free will in the context of love then he can't drag people to himself that's one thing the second thing in that question still from the perspective of christ is that the person assumes that what happens to get saved is that God will be the one to somehow make you want him and um from a calvinistic theological standpoint that might be the case again i don't subscribe to that that um ideology for a multitude of reasons that we've started to look at that would look at much more when we get to romans 9 10 and 11 but i believe that god has given everyone free will and so even in sin there were people who genuinely desired god at least they responded to the level of revelation they already had so david writes for instance david the same person that said all have say and there is no good no not one right he is the same one that would still sing about his love for god paul would talk about the man under the law who in his own ability could not live above his sinful nature but in his heart desired to do so even in the same sin nature you would still read about people like Enoch that walked with God you still read about people like Abraham that in spite of their failures which testified to the fact that indeed they were sinners they genuinely loved the Lord right and so there is a sense in which yes you might you might um by virtue of nature and action you are unable to overcome the bondage of sin you would be like Paul like this is now the old man not the man in Christ you would be like the guy in Romans 7 that the things i want to do i don't find myself doing 
the things I don't want to do. Those are the very things I find. Who will deliver me? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of the Thank God there's victory in Christ, right? Romans 7 um, into chapter 8. So there is a sense in which the salvation that Christ offers, if it is truly reconciliation with God, and if it is truly dependent on our free will, God will not. Because at the end of the day, heaven will be hell for the one who does not want God. Does that make sense? So that is already one perspective as to why you need to believe. Because what is believing really? It's literally receiving that, oh, God does love me. And God does want me to spend eternity with him, with my creator. And I believe that he has made a provision for my sins. Right? So there is already that perspective in the sense in which it is those that truly love the Lord that would... That's why Jesus said, if you love the Father, you would love me. If you hate me, you hate the Father. It's truly those that respond to the revelation of God both from a natural and then in the gospel that will inherit eternal life. That's the first perspective. The second one, I've already touched on it a bit, is that if we automatically inherited Adam's sin. And I explained that, yes, what we see in human beings is that by virtue of the fact that we are born into this world, right, we in and of ourselves have no ability to overcome sin. We have no ability to overcome sin. But I've said that that is not exclusive of our free will. That doesn't somehow rob us. Because the very writer in Romans 3 that said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or, sorry, not all have sinned. Sorry, there is none that does good. No, not one. All have turned away. He <laughs> loved the Lord. Do you get what I'm saying? So even in spite of the sin nature, the Old Testament is replete with people that have responded in some form or the other to some form of revelation. And what we see in the New Testament, again, I'm going to explain this more in Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, is that in the revelation of the gospel, because you can argue, oh, for Abraham, God reached out to him and God said, go. He could have said no. People don't usually think about that. He could have said no. Right, he could have said, Who is this one talking to me? I, do, I don't want when he said sacrifice Isaac, he could have said no. In fact, he was counted righteous because he believed. And James says that he believed and it was shown in his actions. So his in quote sin nature did not rob him of his ability to respond to revelation. Does that make sense? And so that's why Paul starts Romans, the entire book, his very first argument is that at the end of the day, because this then goes, usually it transforms into the question of, oh, what about people that have never heard the gospel and stuff like that? Paul's argument is that when we stand before God at the last day, no one would be with an excuse. No one would have an excuse. We would trust that God would do what is fair, right? We would trust that God being just would do the right thing. So I cannot say, for, I, I mean, for questions like that, when you ask me, oh, people that have not heard, what would happen to them? What I would tell you is that I trust in the wisdom and the justice of God. And I trust in his love. And I know that at that last day, no one would have an excuse. And no one would be able to say God was unfair. Because sin nature or not, we all, at least, I believe scripture teaches. Again, I'll, like I said, a someone who is Calvinist might disagree with me. But I believe that scripture shows that everyone has the ability to respond 
to a certain level of revelation of God. Does that make sense? I hope that answer, at least that helps to start answering your question. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for um, responding to the change in schedule. Um, I really apologize. And by God's grace, next week we'll kick off from our consistent time. So let your friends, let your people know we're back to 10 a.m. EST. What is that? 3 p.m. West African time. So thank you guys for spending the last one and a half hours with me. All right, let's let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for these scriptures we have that we can reflect on thousands of years down the line. I, I pray that we're able to commit ourselves to this journey of growth. Help us to realize that it's an ever continuous work. Help us to always stay humble, to always come to scripture with an open heart, to always respond to all that we learn. And I pray that our lives more and more would reflect all that we have seen to be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.